Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 26, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Noah Rothman is out for the week, beginning today and then most of next week. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And in her first gig as the producer of the podcast, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. <laughs> Hi, John. If it's terrible, I apologize in advance to our listeners. Uh, Noah's very good at this. (laughs) Well, I hope you won't have to eat crow because I have to eat crow today. I did a whole showy thing on the last podcast on Wednesday. We didn't do one yesterday about how the Biden press conference was going to lead with guns, gun control, uh, the, the two shootings in Boulder and Atlanta, and I was wrong, and Abe Greenwald was correct that the press conference would begin with talk of Republican obstruction. In fact, the first question said, Republicans are obstructing all of these things. They're going to obstruct voting rights and this and that. The other thing, what are you going to do about it, Mr. President? So, Abe, crow has been eaten. You are a wiser man than I. Look, in fairness, that first question was like a kitchen sink question. It was uh, the guns might have been in there. I think he the, said guns. Yeah, right. there were but five. The, right. But they, but it wound up with. So now that we've announced the three major, five major issues facing us, what are you going to do about these damn Republicans? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so um, uh, I thought it was a very interesting and telling press conference. Um, I listened to it as I was driving from New York to Chicago. Uh, and so um, it, it was that I was very focused on it since otherwise I would just have had to focus on the trucks that I was passing on the left. Uh, so uh, once again, I, I, I am startled by the political skill that I think Biden has been displaying re- pretty much since he started running for president in 2019 and that he displayed in the press conference, I know that I'm now not talking about the substance of what he is talking about, most of which I have very violent disagreements with. I'm talking about the political skill. He is using all of the tools at his disposal, including his reputation, the image that he has been projecting of being a nice, kind, you know, avuncular, grandfatherly person, uh, wanting to make deals politics is the art of the possible he's just there to get things done for the american people uh and uh and you know he this is all very important to him and uh i i found it um it's like don't underestimate what's going on here there's a reason that his approval ratings are high and are likely maybe to get a little higher, then it's not just that he's throwing trillions of dollars at people. It is that he is deploying a series of arguments and um, maybe not, he is, he is deploying positions that resonate not only with Democrats, but with people who aren't all that especially political and who haven't, who aren't lined up dead certain against him. And, uh, and that is, um, as opposed to Donald Trump, who of course spent his press conferences creating conflict with the media, complaining about his treatment, uh, you know, and, 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 and being belligerent and hostile, uh, not that he didn't have some reason to be belligerent and hostile, but that he impeded the advance of his own message with this constant psychodrama that Biden refused to get into. So that that was my take. We can get into some of the, you know, get into the nitty gritty. What did you guys think? Um, I'm going to push back a little bit on that description. I think you're you're correct to say that his his demeanor is such a striking contrast to how Trump behaved in these situations. I actually found it too far in the other direction, though. It seemed incredibly scripted and incredibly controlled in environment. Um, and and the, the combination of that, just how controlled and scripted it seemed on his end, along with the fact that he's talking about extremely sweeping uh, proposals 
as answers to extremely challenging and complicated things, the issue at the border, the ongoing pandemic, you know, violence in this country. And his strangely discombobulated kind of uh, losing his train of thought, you know, going back, harking back to stories from when he was younger. Sometimes that worked, but other times I felt like it really did not. It, his whole demeanor actually seemed to, to uh, reinforce that he's not up to that challenge. And I think, I mean, the, the, the cruelest, although hilariously insightful uh, summation of it I saw was from our friend Dominic Green at The Spectator, who said it was like watching reality TV show in a care home. You know, there, there was a sense in which he was being put up there to fulfill the role that you described, John, which worked very well when he was a candidate. It was for me personally, I didn't find it reassuring now that he's president and facing all these challenges um, that just his his demeanor was did not inspire confidence. And his words didn't match his demeanor, particularly when he talked about the filibuster, which I know we'll go into later. So that was those were sort of my initial impressions. Um, I think I generally agree about the political skill. I mean, I, I, I thought I guess I was impressed along the same lines. I'm, I'm sort of treating that as an issue slightly uh, apart from. Um, his uh, ability uh, to um, convey thoughts and speak uh, fluidly. Um, uh, but I have to say, whatever success that political skill is attaining has a lot to do with the press that it is coming up against. Um, and in this this press conference, that was very evident. I mean, the kind of um, questions they teed up for him and the lack of follow-up and pushback on the types of statements he made helped facilitate the, the, the success of his, of his approach to po- talking about politics now. Okay, well, I want to push back on you on this because that was sort of the point that I made on Wednesday that he was going to be cosseted and, uh, and supported and lifted up by the press. And I, <clears throat> I was struck on at least at two occasions by... Uh, the pointed nature of the questioning, uh, one about the filibuster and one question about the border. So Caitlin Collins of CNN said to him, uh, Barack Obama said at John Lewis's funeral that the filibuster was a relic of Jim Crow. Do you agree? And Biden said yes. And so she said, well, if you agree, why don't you want to get rid of the filibuster? And there were, th- this, I think, speaks to both the fact that the press was willing to press him on contradictions in his own camp's views of things and to his political skill, because there was a long pause. Uh, you know, I was listening to it, not watching it. So I, I don't know what it felt like watching it. But there was this long pause. And then he said, politics is the art of the possible. <clears throat> that was an extraordinarily clever answer. This is what I mean when I say you can underestimate his formidability because he was put on the spot. He said this thing that is now so controversial was born in evil. And she's like, well, if you're admitting that it's born in evil, how on earth can you not oppose its extirpation? Okay, but even that's a softball question. Sorry to interrupt because it's the Democratic Party is the only party that's been using the filibuster recently, and they've been using it eagerly to to block, you know, everything the Republicans wanted to do when they were in the majority. The real, the tough media question follow up wouldn't have been, what are you going to do about it? It would have been, then how do you explain how your own party has been aggressively using it for years? Like, that's the question she should have asked, I think. Well, so he answered it with your answer. In other words, like he said, <laughs> by saying politics is the art of the possible, what he meant was we're not living in a world in which we can just say things that we don't like can simply be gotten away with. We have to live in the real world in which there are, you know, longstanding, uh, you know, uh, habits of behavior and things like that. We can reform it. We can make it more painful and all of that. But we have to live in the here and now and the things that are. So I, I take your point. I'm not saying that it was a question that was framed in a way to make to really push him to the wall. But she did gotcha him. It was a an effort to gotcha him. She jumped on his answer and he parried it effectively. So there was that, but I I take your point. I mean, I just think it was sort of an interesting moment. And then the other was Cecilia Vega of ABC News, who said, Mr. Biden, you said, President Biden, you say that, you know, you are not responsible for the, uh, the surge in unaccompanied children crossing the border. We talked to a mother in Honduras who sent her nine-year-old with another kid on foot 
to the border. And she said that she had done it because she heard that you were going to let them cross. How do you respond to that? Um, and that was where, you know, the, 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 the pressing of the question on the border, which also is, of course, solely within one ideological camp, which is why aren't you being nicer? You're not being nice enough. Why aren't you being nicer? Mostly, uh, he, he did not have an effective answer for, and he was, I mean, I think it was the, there's no argument that when Celia Vega said this mother said, president Biden is going to let him into America. So that's why we took this chance with him. That's a pretty stunning. He couldn't come up with anything. So I think the press was a little tougher on him than I Hmm. expected. But but even I have to say I, mean, I, I take that point. But even the framing of of that whole issue um, was established by Yumichael Cinder when she sort of asked the question: Isn't the problem here that you were uh, too good and kind and decent a person um, to be tough on the border and yeah. and having broadcast your decentness and your kindness, um, you have now created a problem. Well, you know, you could also say that under those circumstances, that's that you could, if you wanted to be nice about it, say she was putting, uh, you know, a, 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 a shiv in a velvet glove. Mr. Pratt, you are known for being so kind. Mm-hmm. And he, now here all this is happening because of your kindness. What are you going to do about it? That's a kind of interesting. It would be brilliant to put him on the spot. Yeah. Coming from like Fox, if they had <clears throat> right. said well, the exact same thing. Yes. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't get that she was doing anything except tell no. him, you know, flatter him relentlessly, as is her wont when it comes to Democratic politicians. And actually, I, his answer, the the fact that he reveled in the in the fact that yeah, I'm I'm not going to apologize for being a good guy, and I'm just going to ship them all off to Fort Bliss, Fort Bliss, Fort Bliss was his answer to everything. I'm like, that doesn't solve the problem of packing a bunch of kids who are here illegally without adults in their lives. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're packing them in a tent at the border or you're packing them in at a at a at an army base. The problem is the problem and he did he never answered satisfactorily the the question that someone i think it was the univision reporter who said isn't your messaging part of the problem here like are is your administration's messaging since january been actively encouraging this nobody asked him much about the cartels who are trafficking people and across the board i mean none of the details like not not the kind of stuff either during the press conference or post-mortem in the mainstream media that we used to see after a trump press conference for example I mean, look, what's interesting here is that an ox is being gored, which is that this political issue was ginned up and created uh, during the Trump administration to make the case that Trump was uniquely cruel and monstrous uh, and some kind of a demon for this, you know, horrible treatment of of, of children, unaccompanied children uh, at the border. And now we have a new administration, and guess what? The treatment is almost exactly the same because the problem <laughs> is the same. It's children crossing the border. And as it, and he said an interesting thing, by the way. He said uh, very cautiously because he was trying not to make more trouble for himself. He said, what is it we're supposed to do? Kids are coming to the border, little children coming to the border unaccompanied, are we supposed to send them back across the border to die in the heat and starve to death? No one, no, no administration could, no one could do that except the Trump administration, which, which did it. Trump administration didn't do it. That's why the children were in the camps across the border. Right. But, see, but that's because by- a child, a child is standing there knocking on, you know, found not there. You don't go here, go back into this no man's land. You're, you're going to go back across the Rio Grande by yourself. Like that's not the way it's going to happen. So that was pretty unjust actually. And then he said, of course, the, the surge that we're seeing is simply seasonal. Because, you know, you're not going to die in the heat in January, February when you come across. So it's seasonal and it's the same as it was under Trump. And then simple fact of the matter is that if it doesn't stop in the next couple of weeks, the surge is going to be vastly larger than any surge that was seen in 2019 or, or 2020. So uh, you know, the, the number, it doesn't simply freeze in place, you know, just because the press conference happened and he could claim 
taking a snapshot of this moment that the numbers were equivalent to Trump's numbers. They're going to be larger and considerably larger. And the situation remains the same, which is that um, we have this 1,900-mile border. It's an intractable problem. The problem is the regimes in Central and South America that are corrupt and inefficient and, uh, you know, in the pay of criminal gangs and who are making people's lives horrible enough that they send their children without them to go into the United States so that maybe something better can happen for them. Um, We should also talk about the fact that he was uh, questioned about um, allowing media access to what's going on at the border. Um, and his answer was like, come back when I've cleaned my room. You know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they took it. They took it. Right. They rolled right over. Oh, okay. Thank you, Mr. President. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll let you, yeah. we'll let you see it when, yeah, that's right. We'll let you see it when my policy is in place. And then Meaning and when said, he's moved all the well, kids. When, <laughs> well, when will that be? And he's like, I, I don't know. That was right. the interesting thing. Again, right. so yeah, you could say that he, but this is what I'm trying to say. Like, I think given the givens and the indefensibility or the impossibility of making a positive case for what is happening, except the case that, look, I just came into office, you know, we're we're just getting our sea legs you know, give me a break, which is one thing he could say that doesn't answer the question of how his rhetoric and, and Alejandro Mayorkas's rhetoric, the head of the um, Homeland Security Department's rhetoric may have contributed to this surge, right? Um, and And even if he could say, you know, we said some things that maybe had unintended consequences and we're just not going to say them anymore. Oh, the other thing he said, by the way, is, look, most of these unaccompanied minors aren't really minors. That was an interesting point, right? He said, most of them are not minors. They're 16, 17, 18 years old. And then we turn back. Then we throw back across the Rio Grande. Yeah, um, that he, he, but see, that's an example of him. He sort of gets himself in these weird little perambulations uh, verbally that get him in trouble. Rather, well, look, there's a very clear thing he could say. It would anger the progressives in his coalition, but it would reach that vast middle. He could say, we, we had a president who was who didn't want immigrants in this country and was inhumane about uh, in his rhetoric and in his policies. We are going to have a humane border policy. And by that, we mean we still have a border. We can't not everybody just can't come over. But we have we're going to put strategies in place to deal with these issues. And we do have a crisis right now. That's very clear. But here are the humane strategies we are going to lay out and even just mention one or two. But he gets he, you know, he blamed Trump. He kept he focused a lot about uh, on Trump, the Trump administration's policies, and then he started on these weird tangents about you know teenagers. Those are still children. They're not eighteen. They're children. Okay, but here's my point, which is we need to separate out the two. We're having uh, conversations on parallel tracks here. My, I'm simply talking about the political effectiveness of w- what he did yesterday. If we want to talk about substance, the substance was horrible in many, many different realms. And I I don't even mean horrible just because we're conservatives and we don't like liberal policies and stratagems. Um, I mean, the policies were horrible. and, and And the question is, did he handle himself in a way that that advanced his interests and aims and harnessed or either either harnessed or um, or accentuated the popularity that these polls are showing that he has. And I think you're looking at it and saying he's weird, he gets into weird tangents and stuff like that. Some of that, I just don't know if that hurts him. We're looking at this and saying, oh my God, he's lost a step, he's 78, look at the way he talks, he got lost, he got lost in the thickets of a couple of questions and all of that. Assume that people know that he's 78, including all the people who voted for him, who make up, you know, 51.5% of the electorate. They knew he was 78. They know who he is. They, they, they've accepted this. And they are not, they have made allowances for it. And therefore, it doesn't harm him to show a little age. 
But see, that's where I disagree. I, okay. I mean, I think actually, I think you're right for a certain kind of voter, but there's an equal, I, I would argue, an equal number of voters who are looking at the challenges this country faces, and that's actually not reassuring to them. Like, you need a man for the moment kind of reaction. And there are a lot of serious crises facing this country right now. And the idea that he might, that he's avuncular, somewhat confused grandpa might not actually be reassuring to some people, even after four years of Trump. I, I mean, that's very plot. We we don't know, right? I, I I'm saying so. Uh, that that time only time can tell that, right? We can only tell whether he retains support or whether people seem relatively enthusiastic about him. How the opinion, the general opinion of the Democratic Party fares in in these you know generic measurements of whether you like Democrats or Republicans and all that. That that's what we'll see over the next uh, couple of months. Um, I think that in terms of there are a lot of crises, his answer, which is I got all this stuff coming down the pike. I got infrastructure. I got uh, uh, I've got voting rights. I've got, you know, a lot of great things coming down the pike. And I want to work with Republicans. They it's just a question of whether they want to work with me or not, because I want to work with them. Now, this is an interesting Gambit also, because of course he doesn't want to work with them. He wants them to surrender to him and do what he wants. But the Republican line is, we're not going to work with him. We're not working with him. That's Mitch McConnell. Like we're not, we're not going to corrupt ourselves by working with him. I don't know as a public messaging issue whether that's a good message. I mean, I don't know what the good message is because he has to hold his coalition together and to say, we are not going to cooperate with or give into policies that we think are bad and un-American and all of that. But if Biden's line is, I'm just standing here wanting to work with you guys and you're just giving me the high hat. And you know what? After a while, if there's just, as he said, chaos and lockdown then my general sense that, you know, the filibuster is a good thing and the way that, you know, the building of compromises as they've been over the course of the two centuries or whatever, that's got to change. Again, to me, that seems pretty effective if it you're would not be if us. He had, it would be if he hadn't in, agreed instantaneously to the Jim Crow stuff, because he's that the preface to all of this is it's not just that the other side won't cooperate and compromise and wheel and deal with us. It's that they're racist. They're bad people. And I can't work with bad people. That's the message I think a lot of voters hear when they hear that, like, we have to get rid of the filibuster because it's this relic of Jim Crow. And the only people who want Jim Crow are Republicans. I mean, that that kind of broad sweeping stuff, I think, undermines what you're describing, John. And I agree that's probably more what Biden wants to do. But he's kind of gotten got himself in a little bit of a trap with the way that this the filibuster issue has been framed in particular. Uh, okay, so we should talk more about the filibuster. But first, I want to talk to you about this new chair that I got. I got this chair. They sent it to me because they're they wanted to advertise. They wanted me to try it and see if I liked it. It's called the X chair. It's an office chair. I have it in my home. It is fantastic. It's the X chair. I've never had an office chair that looks or feels so amazing. It's so comfortable. I've been sitting for hours. I never feel uncomfortable. The secret is not only its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back, but now thanks to their new XHMT technology, I get heat and massage therapy while I'm sitting at my desk. So instead of my old uncomfortable office chair, I can look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. And I do. The XHMT delivers heat and massage technology right to my core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks that make working from this chair in my home, but if I had it in my office, the same, a joy. It has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when I'm sore. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. Trust me, this is the luxury supercar of office chairs. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X chair commentary.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. 
and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS, X-W-H-E-E-L-S, for free X-Wheel blade casters. That's xchaircommentary.com. Now, let's talk about the filibuster. So, of course, the filibuster... I'm sure most everybody who's listening knows the filibuster is the is the way is the way that you can uh, use the unlimited debate rule in the Senate to prevent a vote to close debate, uh, uh, which requires a three fifths majority to close debate on all bills except bills that have a budgetary uh, component reconciliation component, uh, which cannot be blocked uh, with a filibuster uh, on a basically a, a, a rule that came in place about 40 years ago. Uh, but otherwise, you need 60 votes to close debate and bring a bill to the floor of the Senate for a final vote. And the issue here, of course, is that the Democrats have, it's a 50-50 Senate. The vice president can break a tie and so the Democrats can work their will at will if only there were no filibuster. Um, and uh, the filibuster exists as a means of creating uh, a roadblock in the Senate to majoritarian impulses. Not to get too fancy pants, but the Senate is an anti-majoritarian institution. It grants two votes to every state, regardless of population, size, location, everything. All states have equal representation in the Senate. So California with 38 million people has two senators and Wyoming, which has, I don't know, 650,000 people has two senators. It is by structure and definition, an anti-majoritarian institution that represents the interests of states and not of populations. And this is maddening to people who live in larger states, which happen now to be overwhelmingly democratic, blue. And so they want to work their will claiming that, look, they have uh, majorities of voters, large majorities of voters in these states, and yet they can't get their will through. Now, the House, which has one vote per 435,000 people or something like that, uh, is totally majoritarian. And the presidency, it's not totally majoritarian because of the Electoral College, but it's largely majoritarian. But the Senate was created to be an anti-majoritarian institution. In fact, the Senate wasn't even voted on by the public until 1913. Senators were not voted, were not uh, elected by, by voters. They were chosen by state legislatures until 1913. And the filibuster exists as an outgrowth of that, even though it's a relic of Jim Crow and block all of that stuff. It was used to block progressive legislation, particularly on civil rights throughout the first half of the 20th century and even into the second half. Uh, but it, but it, but it's an outgrowth of the same principle, which is that the Senate does not operate according to majoritarian rules. It's not 50 plus 1% that gets you uh, a majority in the Senate. The Senate doesn't operate on that understanding. And therefore, it's a much more consensus-based way that you get legislation through the Senate, through compromise, and by almost of necessity, except at certain times in American history, bipartisan participation and bipartisan support. Which right? I just I just want to add, that's exactly what the founders explicitly said. They said, this is like the cup, you know, the saucer that the hot liquid spills over and it cools. It's decidedly designed to have cooler heads prevail through negotiation and compromise in a way that even the House of Representatives was not. And that's actually what, that's why the Jim Crow invocation drives me mad. I'm like, it's actually designed to stop the majority from having its will go un, untrammeled by any sort right. of roadblock. And among other things, the fact that um, the activist left, or not, or largely the left, uh, wants to get rid of it now, um, gives the lie to the idea that they are against populism. Right? They're 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 against right wing populism. Right. Well, look, the other way of looking at the 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 breakout the breakout of these three uh, bodies of elected officials is that the House 
represents local interests wherever they are. Those local interests, by the way, can be contradictory depending on what state you're in. In other words, if you're in upstate New York, your interest as a House member may be radically different from uh, AOC representing Queens and Brooklyn, right? Totally different. Um, That's their local interests. The Senate is there to represent state interests. That's why each state has the same representation in the Senate. And the presidency represents national interests because it's the only office on which everyone in the country votes simultaneously. And these, of course, are divergent interests. They are not, and, and this is the point about legislation. It is supposed to be difficult because these interests are divergent. You are not supposed to be able to steamroller your way through by saying, I have one more than you. That's why we are a republic and not a democracy. That is why we are not a democracy, even though we use the word democracy. Um, it's a whole complicated reason that we embrace the word democracy to describe the United States, because uh, democracy, you know, in 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 the most classic terms, in in like uh, Athenian terms, uh, w- democracy was so radically person by person by person that, you know, the leaders were drawn by lot. Like you would, you know, you would, uh, anyone could become, uh, you know, consul or whatever the hell you want to call it. It didn't matter who you were. You could, you could be elevated to being somebody who, who, who ran the place. Depending and on we the don't day, function too. that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we don't function that way. We have a, we have a different system. And yeah, when you have an activist agenda and let's say, Republicans had an active have one activist agenda, have had one passionate activist agenda over the last 30, 40 years, which is the judiciary. When you have an activist agenda that where you want to sort of get things done in order to seize the high ground or do whatever it is that you have to do, then you kind of screw around with things. Although, of course, it was not the Republicans who lifted the filibuster for judicial nominations. It was Harry Reid, the last Democratic uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, before Chuck Schumer, and he did it because he wanted to ram through judges. And Mitch McConnell said at the time in 2013, "You will rue the day that you did this. I don't want you to do this, but if you do this, we are going to eat your lunch the minute that we get into power. And you know what else? It's not just going to be for lower court judicial nominations. We're going to get in, and we're going to do it for the Supreme Court. And lo and behold, they did." Well, and the same principle holds true for this argument about why they need to, you know, nuke the filibuster to get their own legislative agenda. That's great. But then once Republicans control the Senate again, look at all the stuff they're going to get done. I mean, it doesn't it's not very forward thinking. It assumes a permanent Democratic majority going forward, which one should never assume given our recent political history. Right. And, and uh, you know, th- th- look, that that is a vital point, because, of course, when you have a pent-up de- policy demand from one side of the aisle that has been stymied over, you know, a, a period of four years or however long they might feel they have been stymied, and they get into office, they are both thrilled because power is in their hands again, and they are desperate because they because having been in a position of powerlessness, suddenly they're in a position of power. And the idea is we got to get everything done as fast as possible because they may pull the cup away from us again. And so you have this equal parts, the kind of thing that should lead you to self-confidence and say, you know what, if we handle this right, if we're careful and slow and deliberate and we do what what, what we do and we get our things done and we show how good our policies are and all of this, we can really solidify our position of power, expand it, increase it, and grow this over time incrementally and lead the people in our direction. But that is not the way American politics works now. It's like, you get it if you're a Republican or a Democrat, and then you're going to push everything you can as fast as possible until they pull the rug out from under you, which is the opposite way of building consensus and majorities of your views. It's like, ha ha, screw you. We're going to do what we're going to do. And then you actually create the conditions under which power is removed from you two years later. You know, if you're Clinton, you win with 43% of the vote, you start advancing national health care with absolutely no national consensus that this is a good idea 
And, you know, uh, tax increases and midnight basketball and whatever the hell else it is that you're pushing because and you, you don't you only got 43 percent of the vote anyway. You are literally creating the conditions under which Republicans take the House for the first time in 40 years. You know, I think like, and, and, and that's what's going to that might be what's happening now, though it doesn't feel that way necessarily. To connect this to, John, your uh, first assertion, uh, earlier assertion about Biden um, doing something impressive politically here, I think to the extent that he's doing something impressive politically, it's 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 his ability to extend this period during which he r- maintains a sort of equidistant position between the the kind of activist politics that you're that are now hold sway and some version of the old establishment politics this is both on the filibuster and on the border you know um he he sort of he can continue to sort of float out there in between the the those the the two poles and not yet have to worry about paying a price on one side or the other of the of the question and he's that's a good point because he's also the other thing he has going for him currently is the uh, entire conservative side of the aisle, including the Republican Party, continuing to be in some form of disarray, not kind of knowing. I, mean, I put a lot of the blame, John, for, for that diagnosis. The Republicans could rebuild and be that party, the ones who say, OK, look, Trump. Was Trump an aberration? Was this something that we need to like learn from, you know, retool, grow, think about what our coalition should look like going forward? I mean, there are a couple of Republicans here and there who've talked about that. How do we, you know, keep working class voters? How do we get more minority voters in our coalition? Like, how do we, what do we want our party to look like in 10 or 20 years, not just in two? But there aren't enough Republicans having that conversation and conservative intellectuals in general having that conversation because there's I mean, it's it's pretty early on. But that's the conversation that has to happen on the right as well. Um, otherwise, I think it is to Biden and the Democrats advantage that it doesn't because they are, as they've said, able to kind of ride that rail that they've been riding since the election. Right, um, guys. So it is one shopping day. And if you're. Uh, if you keep the Sabbath, uh, only several hours left to get yourself that copy. This is the last ad I'm doing this month for that remarkable book about Passover and the Passover Haggadah, the telling by Mark Gerson, because the Seder starts tomorrow night. And the, the telling is, of course, this remarkable book length study examination of the themes, the ideas, the structure, and the, and the, um, uh, historical importance of the Passover Seder. Uh, uh, Mark uh, uh, tells uh, the story in a uh, hundred different ways uh, with a lot of great detail. You know the Seder's coming. If you are somebody who has a Seder, you know that it can be boring. You know that you run out of things to say. You've been saying the same thing every year over and over again. Same stuff. If you've got certain ty- types of uh, Haggadot, you're making the same points that are in the footnotes about the wise son and the son who doesn't know how to ask and then what Dayenu is about and all of this. You need fresh material. You're going to get it from the telling. Go download it right now on your Kindle or, you know, or iBooks or whatever it is that you read. Get some fresh material. Look at this very interesting book. has all kinds of fun things in it. You can talk about at the Seder beginning tomorrow night and Sunday night, The Telling by Mark Gerson. We thank him very much for sponsoring the podcast over the course of this month. And I hope that we have made some sales because, let's face it, having an engaged Seder is one of the most wonderful things that anyone can do for anyone, in my experience. Um, So... uh, Guys, you're talking about the Republicans in disarray, and we have two things that happened uh, yesterday. Christine, Trump went on uh, Laura Ingram's show, uh, and uh, there was trouble. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I made that say the, the transcript will read, Rosen makes noise of disgust. Yes, he went on <laughs> Fox News, and he tried to uh, act as if the insurrectionist riot at the Capitol on January 6th was just some sort of like peaceful, you know, we're just ambling into the Capitol. The cops love us. We love them. It's all fine. When, you know, many officers were grievously injured. One died as a result of his uh, treatment at the hands of a mob. There was destruction, mayhem. Um, And for him this soon to go on the air and act as if that didn't happen 
suggests that he is either demented and, you know, experiencing some sort of psychosis, or he just really doesn't want to engage with the uh, impact of what that meant for the country and, and certainly for the Republican Party. It was uh, despicable. That's the only word I can think of to describe it when I heard what he said. Um, so even in the wake of uh, the immediate wake of, of January 6th, we there, there, there were conversations on the right, right, which were, no, he didn't. The first thing was it happened, but he didn't encourage it. It's not fair. He didn't know it was coming. He didn't mean when he said, let's walk down to the Capitol. He didn't mean them to break into the Capitol and say they wanted to hang Mike Pence and all that. That's not fair. We are now downshifting into it didn't happen. Now, yes, and that's very dangerous. That's a dangerous downshift. I don't know how you downshift into it didn't happen when... It's like saying 9/11 didn't happen. You know, okay, fine. So you don't you you don't show the falling bodies after not, you know, the people jumping out of the windows on 9/11. No one's holding back on the video footage of what happened in the Capitol building on January 6th and the fact that several hundred people now have been arrested for participating in a violent insurrection not just beating up cops and stuff like that but ch- going around chanting hang Mike Pence trashing the Capitol building, not only criminal trespass, but, you know, actual damage, you know, um, who knows what would have happened if they hadn't gotten those electoral ballots out of the, out of the Senate chamber? What if those, what if those, what if those physical documents had been seized by somebody, which could very easily have happened? We saw people wandering around the Senate chamber. Um, He's now saying it didn't happen. And this is like that you know, what are you going to believe me or your own eyes? Like, and people are going to believe it. And I, and that's because they want to believe it. That's because they want to pretend that it didn't happen. And it did happen. This is now connected to the fact that this morning, interestingly enough, Trump went on Laura Ingram's show on Fox to say what he said, Dominion Voting Systems, which has sued Sidney Powell and uh, the My Pillow guy and a couple of other people, has now formally sued Fox News for $1.6 billion for defamation for having spread these, you know, false and crazy stories about how Dominion was owned by Hugo Chavez and was, was you know, had changed the physical algorithm so that well, there's no physical algorithm, changed the algorithm to change vote totals and did this and did that and did the other thing. Uh, I don't think this is a nuisance suit. Um, I think that they have. Uh, they are, this is a suit that has a high likelihood of some success, whatever that means. I mean, it could mean a gigantic settlement in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It could mean if, if Fox decides it can't do that, it could mean losing in a court of law because it seems to me it's a pretty open and shut case of defamation because defamation Fox transmitted the information. It may or may not have known that it was false, but you know, I'm not. I, I don't know to what extent that matters. Uh, and uh, and they have created real harm to this business, uh, which, as uh, as I've said on this podcast, you know, no state with a Republican Secretary of State or no Republican state can hire Dominion Systems to help with their elections now, because of course the Trumpian wing will, you know, come down on the elected officials. So it's not going to happen. So they are, they are hurting. They are, they're going to get much less business than they might otherwise. And that's because of the spreading of false and defamatory stories about them. And, you know, oh, go ahead. Amy. I think indi- individual lawsuits are a much better way to go about um, attacking dangerous claims and conspiracy theories than, you know, uh, sort of, um, administrative decisions about who gets a voice in the, in the public square. Um, it's uh, more fair and, and more in keeping with our system. Um, and it stings more, uh, or, or it potentially could, um, if, if we're talking about the kind of numbers that, that we, well, that and, it, and it, most importantly, that's such a good point because as it, sh- as we saw with the Sydney Powell case, it immediately forces you to distinguish between ideological opinions and fact in a way that the public square does, you know, we mix this stuff up all the time, especially if we're in the business of, you know, touting our opinions. But when it comes to defamation and actual harm in a court of law, you actually have to show and prove it. And there's a way to do that. And their dominion's doing that and good for them. 
I mean, I think it's going to be hard for Fox to make the case that they were not defamed. I mean, Fox, Fox is the defendant, so it, it doesn't have to, you know, it, it's not in a position where it has to make a, defi- uh, you know, it only has to defend itself again. I, I mean, not a, it's not a criminal proceeding. These things are weird because I guess it's a tort and they, they, these have different standards and evidentiary standards and it's, uh, and even different levels of proof from a criminal court, a uh, criminal case. But, um, you know, this is a tough one um, because, as we saw in the Sidney Powell case, her only defense is that she didn't mean it. Now, by the way, if she didn't mean it and you should have known that she didn't mean it because she was only expressing an opinion, that's bad for Fox because Fox was the transmitter of the false opinion. Now, she says you should have known that she didn't mean it, but... Hmm. I'm not sure that that works for Fox's denial of its responsibility for the transmission of the false opinion that you should have known she didn't mean. Well, we now know that millions of people believed that she meant it and that it was true. Um, And all of this does suggest a deep unhealthiness and a real issue here. Yeah, for this very important political fight that is going on, Biden is looking to expand the federal government in a way that we have not seen since the 1930s. He's now talking about a $3 trillion uh, infrastructure investment, massive tax increases, of course, green stuff coming down the pike and all of that. Um, This is no joke. The, the, the response to it needs to be serious and remorseless and, 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 focused and dedicated and we have all the good arguments on our side here and uh we are getting we are we are going to be pushed into uh uh mishigas and craziness by the decision that trump is obviously making to continue to push the people who follow him to argue untrue crazy nonsense that discredits them rather than advances the cause of retarding this advance of statism that Biden is fronting. Well, worse, I mean, one of the things, one of the words you didn't use, but I think is implied here and really important is we need a principled response to what the Democratic left is is trying to do right now. And the problem is that Trump is trying to co-op the idea of the principled response and make himself the prince. Like you have to, you have to first embrace the principles of Trumpism if you're going to be a part of this, you know, vast right wing. And, and that's not a good litmus test for the conservative movement. We need principled political leaders who are willing to say, and actually it was interesting that, that I, I did note that Laura Ingram shut down Trump when he started talking about the election. She's like, we're not going to relitigate something that's already over. So there, there, that's a tiny shift. It's not seismic, but the more, you know, kind of pundits who do that on, on the pro-Trump side, the more political leaders who stand up and go, you know what, this is done. Let's move on. The better. Yeah, but why did she do that? She did that because word because came down lawsuit. from Fox Central <laughs> yes, yes, that we're not, we don't want to give Dominion any more goods. Exactly. And so that's why it's good. You know, that's, that's, she's exactly not right. principled, but I'm just saying we need, yeah, we right. need more principled you know, people to. to <laughs> regarding uh, this idea that, you know, so he says uh, the, the protest, the, on January 6th, the, the crowd of people came in, they greeted the cops, then they, they left, and it was all peaceful and wonderful. And all that. Um, I don't know that what's happening here is that since he's saying it didn't happen, people will believe it didn't happen. I think it's slightly different than that. I think um, he's saying, and people are uh, who support him are understanding it doesn't matter if it happened. We don't, we don't, it, that's, it's it, what reality actually is, is actually unimportant. It's not that uh, we uh, we're being lied to here. It's that it doesn't even matter. Um, we get to keep pushing forward regardless. Absolutely. And look, you know, uh, I was talking about the uh, the spending, you know, the uh, Biden effectively proposing to spend $5 trillion between the stimulus and, uh, and infrastructure and whatever else is coming down the pike. And what is that going to mean macroeconomically? That's why you got to go to our friends at the Bonson Group uh, daily and weekly to follow this intersection of public policy markets and the and the and the macro economy because um if uh we've been spending more than 10 years waiting for an inflationary spiral from the first 
uh, Obama stimulus uh, through various other things, including the Trump tax cut. Nothing has been pushing the, the, the effort to kill inflation in the early 1980s was so wildly successful um, and, and, and so deep and had such a deep effect that we're, we've been effectively 40 years into a period of low inflation or almost no inflation. And um, is that going to continue? you got to read the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com from David Bonson, the head of the Bonson Group, in order to watch this granularly as we go forward, particularly in a period of potentially explosive economic growth apart from this uh, government involvement in the economy, which could, as we've been hearing, really overheat things and bring us back to a to a period in which uh, the cost of goods and uh, and the, the cost of uh, staples and we're already seeing inflation in the housing markets. We are going to see inflation in gas prices, particularly with this ship aground at the Suez Canal blocking the transshipment of oil to the rest of the world. Um, I saw it driving, by the way, yesterday uh, from New York to Chicago, gas prices up a dollar, I think, from where they were only a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, that's only going to get worse. What is that? What effect is that going to have not only on you and your household and your family, but what effect is it going to have on your portfolio? What kind of investments do you need to make in a period of potentially rising inflation to protect husband and grow your assets. That is what you can get from the Bonson Group, from their products, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. The Bonson Group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Um, so we had one other thing. Oh, uh, one amazing cancellation thing that is going on that is so chilling that uh, you know, I don't even know that we have the vocabulary to deal with it. The editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association appeared on a podcast produced by JAMA, uh, and the host of the podcast said he did not believe that there was structural racism in health, in the in in the world of public health or health or medicine or whatever, uh, and that he did he thought that most medical professionals did, would not appreciate being called racists, and that this was a terrible thing. The person who said this, the host of that podcast, has resigned from uh, JAMA, and the editor who was on the podcast has himself been placed on leave while an investigation, administrative leave, uh, while an investigation takes place um, of whether or not it is even remotely permissible for this guy, Edward Livingston, the host of the podcast, to say many of us are offended by the concept that we are racist. That apparently well, saying that is enough to get Edward Livingston fired and to get uh, Frederick Bauchner, the the editor of JAMA, uh, suspended and put on leave. And Bauchner, of course, forced to do one of these, um, uh, you know, Stalinist uh, apologies, said uh, the comments were inaccurate, offensive, hurtful, and inconsistent with the standards of JAMA. So th th this this should actually this is chilling in the same way that that story from a week or so ago about the Georgetown University law professors is chilling. The person who supposedly uh, committed the racial sin, i.e., questioning, you know, in the case of Georgetown, the grades of African American students. Um, in this case, the legitimacy of using structural racism as a category of analysis, right? I mean, it's not as if this guy said, oh, there's no such thing as racism. What he's saying is this might not be the best way in terms of how we talk about health and, and uh, medical issues to analyze these situations because it ends up offending people because they feel like they are being called racist merely because of the color of their skin, which indeed they are being called. If you read, I've read a fair amount into what's going on in medical schools with regard to anti-racist stuff, and it's, it is chilling. The more chilling fact is that now, if you're the person who happens to be on the other end of one of these conversations, your job is also at risk if you don't immediately denounce that person as racist. So in the Georgetown case, there was another professor she was talking to. He was placed on leave and there's an investigation ongoing. In this case, the guy who's uh, from the journal is now on leave, even though he had not, all he was doing was sitting there listening. But because he didn't actively endorse the ideological theory at issue here, 
that he is suspect. That's a real shift. And it, it, it's, it's, it's one everyone should be concerned about because if you're the next time you're forced by your large corporation to sit in a critical race theory dominated, you know, training seminar, someone says something like, I don't see color. That's not considered racist. If you don't speak up and denounce that as racist, maybe you're going to be at risk. And I'm not, it, this sounds hyperbolic, but this is exactly what is happening. And I, I, I think I'll probably look at this over the weekend and write about it for early next week. But there's a lot of stuff going on in the field of medicine right now that will have real life, uh, very dangerous consequences for patients in hospitals, for, for patients who go to visit doctors, if this is allowed to continue to flourish in the medical field. You know, it, it's, it's not hyperbolic at all. And um, this is why over the, le- the past summer, when, when we, what we described as the great unraveling and I wrote about as a revolution, um, as we said, it's not strictly about the, um, the, the, the violent, the mass violent component that makes it an unraveling or, or a revolution. It is about the ideas that were advanced during those terrible months. And those ideas have stuck. They are, they have stayed with us. They have grown. They have been further institutionalized. And that's what we are seeing. And just because there are not riots at this moment, which is to say nothing of what, what comes forth, it doesn't mean that there, that what was advanced then has, has not, they have, they've held this ground by virtue of the muscle that was displayed back then. And it is very important to note that where these revolutions are happening, are not it's not a ground level it's not you know in everyday relationships between white people and black people and all this it is happening in the elites it is all the elites making war on the elites it is the journal of the american association it's georgetown university it's conde nast it's the new york times the the high ground of culture uh of the of american culture writ large or american society writ large is being rewritten as we speak to reflect the priorities of a radical set of ideas about the structure and nature of American society. Um, and, and what actually goes on in the lives of ordinary people is not yet entirely implicated. Um, the whole point is to seize the high ground so that the high ground can then, like supply-side economics, trickle down to everybody else. And that's what's interesting. It's like um, uh, Freddie DeBoer, this um, uh, very interesting, crazy, radical uh, journalist, on uh, you know, writes very interesting stuff on, and has this thing on, on on Substack, who is saying, you know, all of these woke wars in journalism that have now created this weird new market on Substack for individual writers to get audiences because they no longer have hospitable fora in which to uh, sell their wares and write their pieces. And uh, there is a ready-made and pretty large audience for them. This is because nobody actually knows or thinks or anything. None of, these, none of this woke revolution has any popular support. Like, readers aren't clamoring for the publications to be woke. It's staff at the institutions that are clamoring from, for them to be woke. People want to be told the truth about things. They want to hear true things, not false things, for the most part, unless you are like a crazy activist, if you are a, a, Q, if you are a, a, a certain type of uh, Trumper, you want to hear what the Trump has said. But if you're a woke person, you want to hear only X and not Y, and Y is evil and has to be you know, ground out, uh, and, and this is all terrible. But that is not what the overwhelming mass of people want or need or think that they should have. And therefore, if you can isolate it to the elites who are uniquely susceptible to a certain type of bubble false consciousness where they think that the world has shifted around them when it's only their zip code that has shifted around them, um, you know, you, you, you are living in an entirely different set of realities. And actually, the cases that are most intriguing to that point, which is a really important point, is like the case at Smith College, where a woke, privileged student who happened to be black immiserated a bunch of white working class people by calling them racist with no evidence. She just made up a story um, and their lives were ruined. And there was actually recently a whole bunch of black intellectuals actually issued a letter saying, 
we need to be fighting for the rights of these white working class people to not be deemed racist without evidence. So the elite, the trickle down has started, but it starts with the people who are who are working, you know, uh, working class jobs in these elite institutions, the people who are the support staff, the people who go home and have multiracial families and plenty of multiracial interactions, and to whom the idea that you can't have a, a serious, open, honest discussion about race is, is anathema because they have them every day. They just don't have them in the critical race theory terms that the elites want them to have. And they live their lives by principles and values that the elites don't think should be called principles or values. Those cases, I think we're going to start to see more and more of, and hopefully we'll start making, uh, becoming more critical and skeptical of the elite opinion about those cases. And I think the Smith, the Smith report, the reporting by the New York Times about that Smith case was really useful in that regard, actually. Okay. So again, my apologies to my colleagues for my glib pronouncement that their understanding of what was going to happen in the press conference was wrong and that I was right because I was wrong and they were right. I was also wrong about the name of the uh, editor of the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association. It was not Frederick Bauchner, but Howard Bauchner. So I apologize for that. Uh, for those of you who are uh, who are celebrating uh, uh, Passover, have a wonderful Pesach, uh, have great seders, have... Uh, uh, in, inspiration and uh, and uh, and a renewed commitment to uh, to the uh, to the this uh, greatest miracle in Jewish and possibly human history. Uh, we'll be back to you on Monday for uh, Abe and Christine. In the absent Noah Rothman, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.